You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you, and uh, welcome to Kootenai Community Church Adult Sunday School. It doesn't limit us to adults. Welcome to bring uh, the children as well, but I know also the uh, children's Sunday school is going in simultaneously with our school. I want to uh, introduce this portion of Scripture by just saying that Many of the Puritans and many of the early Reformers consider this one of the greatest passages taught in the New Testament. The reason being because it introduces us to a great and grand doctrine, and that is the doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. As we look at this, it is a difficult Uh, passage to grasp, and yet it's necessary for our belief in Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he has done to provide the way of salvation for all those that place their faith in him. So if you would, please turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, and we will read... um, Some of the verses that I've already covered, but I want to bring us into context. So we'll begin with verse 5 in chapter 2. Before we do, would you go with me to the Lord? Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word that you have granted to us through the empowerment and the guidance of your Holy Spirit. We thank you. Lord, for providing us with your Holy Spirit, and apart from which we would not have understanding of the depths of your word. We just praise you and thank you for the provision you provided through your Son, Jesus Christ. And as we began to examine this text, we just pray that you would guide us, instruct us, not only so we have an understanding theologically, but that we might recognize the supreme example of humility that Jesus Christ lived as he lived on this earth during the incarnation. We just praise you and thank you and ask that you would be ultimately glorified as we examine your word And as we, by the power of your spirit and through your grace, apply these truths to our lives. And we just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We know that Paul is writing from his imprisonment in Rome. He is writing to the Philippians because he wants to request and guide these Philippian believers into of unity so that they might be 
not only united as they proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they might also honor God with their lives. He wants them to fully embrace the essence of what it is to live out the gospel, not just to proclaim it. We are to live out the truths of God's word by his grace as he enables us. And this is what Paul was directing these Philippians to do. He knew that there was some division amongst them. He didn't want that division to continue. So here in this text, he's presenting the attitude which they should display. So we'll pick up and actually go back to verse 3, because this is the essence of what Paul is driving them away from. He does not want them to live a selfish life. So in verse 3, he begins with this. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So Paul here gives us now the perfect example to follow. That is the person of Jesus Christ. Now in the early church, after the word was penned, they had many Christians that were asking questions. They were puzzled over some of the truths of God's word. And when these questions came to a point in which they had to address them, uh, they had what they called a church council. Now, we're familiar with some of the great church councils throughout church history, but what they did in these councils is they would take these questions and they would examine them before the Word of God. These church fathers would look into God's Word and see how to evaluate these questions so they could answer them in light of God's Word. What an example for us to emulate. As we live out our Christian lives, we are confronted daily with situations and issues that we face and we should do so with the understanding of how God's word reveals truths to us that we are to emulate by his grace. Here is a perfect example. Paul knew that without addressing this issue of disunity and some of the saints that were having some division and strife, without answering and addressing this by the supreme example, he would just be using the example of a man. But he lifted this up to the highest form by pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, 
in, uh, in light of these questions, there were different views of who Christ was and what he had done. Some were bringing forth the teaching that Jesus Christ was only a man, not God incarnate. That false teaching made it all the way up to our current time, that Jesus was just a man. He was a good prophet, good teacher, but only a man. That false teaching was addressed in one of these councils. Then there was another group that denied the essence of God's humanity. They said he was God, but not in human form. So in essence, they denied the incarnation. So these issues were being brought up to this early church council, to the father, church fathers. There's another group who denied the two natures of Christ, God and man. And there was a group, a third group, that denied the essence of God being fully man and fully God incarnate. Uh, one of them goes back to the early centuries of the church, and this false teaching was brought forth by a man by the name of Arius. And he brought forth the teaching that Christ could not be man and God simultaneously. So that was a teaching that is followed today, and it's a form of Arianism. And one of the outcrops of that following is Jehovah Witness and Mormonism. They deny the deity of Christ, and they say that he was neither God nor man, yet he was the highest created, created being by God the Father. We also have another group uh, which came out of Sabellianism. That is where God would manifest in three different forms. Sometimes he would manifest as God the Father, sometimes as God the Son, sometimes God the Holy Spirit. Another heresy which was refuted in the fourth century of the early church. They condemn these heretical teachings, and yet every false religion that we see today denies that Jesus Christ indeed was God incarnate. Some will say, well, he was a good prophet. Some will say, as these followers of Arian, that he was the highest created being, but he wasn't man. He was just God's creation. All of these teachings were brought before the church council. All of them were refuted because of their heretical nature. And they brought forth the understanding of the triune Godhead. That is, one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Which is the preeminent teaching in Christianity. We may have difficulty trying to wrap our, our understanding around that, and yet we believe it because it's taught throughout God's Word. It's part of the fundamental doctrines of Christian faith. So these councils proceeded with these teachings, 
and they would determine if there was error, and they'd bring forth the truth based upon God's word. Paul, in this text, in verses 6 through 8, is trying to bring the understanding of the theological truth of God the Son descending from heaven to live here on earth as a man and yet fully God. He exercised complete humility in doing so. These uh, teachers at that time were uh, coming forth, and amongst them were the Pharisees who loved to be exalted and lifted up. And yet Christ taught in his period of time here on earth, and we read in Matthew 28, verses 8 through 12, the Lord said this, not to be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humiliated or humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. So Christ here in his teaching was bringing forth the essence of Christians living a humble life. Jesus gives us the perfect example in his descent from heaven. He left the exalted position in glory and honor and came to increasing indignity as he took on the form of man. He became man and yet fully God. James Montgomery Boyce uh, says this about what is God's glory. He describes God's glory as God's glories consist of his intrinsic worth embedded in his character or his attributes. And all of that can be known by God is merely an expression. It is this glory, a glory that embodies the idea of God's intrinsic worth and character that Jesus claimed to share and to have made known to his disciples. When his disciples built, beheld his glory at the wedding feast in Cana, it meant that the disciples beheld his character, and this is the character of God. If we see Jesus, we have seen the Father. This was a claim that Christ made here on earth as he lived in a time of his incarnation. As we look at verse 6, in the first part of verse 6 in chapter 2, Paul says this, <clears throat> Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So what does that mean? What is Paul saying here? Although he existed in the form of God. Now, last time we... we did kind of an overview or introduction to this, I brought in the essence of the original meaning of form. Now, there's two uh, words in the original which express form. And MacArthur says this, although he existed in form of God. He said existed as a continuance and previous state of existence. It stresses the essence of a person's nature. 
that which is absolutely unalterable, inalienable, and unchangeable, end quote. William Barclay describes it in this way. He says that the verb existed refers to that part of a person which in any circumstance remains the same. In this case, it's the immutability of God. He's unchangeable. And that's the word that was used in this text. In light of Christ's full deity, his incarnation was the greatest humiliation ever exhibited throughout all human history. By definition, to forsake means that of perfect, taking perfection to some form of imperfection. And though Christ lived a sinless, holy life here on earth, he took the form of man. He lived here as a man and yet fully God. And what he experienced was that of what man experiences, pain, suffering, sorrow, joy, all the emotions of man, all the physical essence of a man Christ experienced here during his incarnation. <clears throat> As we also think about this, he's not forsaking in any way his deity, though he did limit some of his attributes. He didn't exercise all his attributes fully during the time of his incarnation. He was still able to do miracles, perform miracles. He was still able to forgive sin. He was still able to feel pain, and yet he lived in sinless perfection. The perfect God and perfect man. <clears throat> the heart of the gospel of redemption is that the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's in 2 Corinthians 5.21. So what does that mean? He became sin, or even though he knew no sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That is, the imputation of sin of all those who put their faith and trust in Christ, those sins were paid for by Jesus Christ's sacrifice. So here we see the perfect example again of this humility. That imputation that God placed the penalty of sin on Christ for all those that place their faith in him is what we embrace. We embrace his righteousness and by faith we place our trust in Christ for forgiveness and salvation and eternal life. C.S. Lewis describes the incarnation in this way. He wrote the, a book called The Book of Miracles. In the chapter called The Great Miracle, C.S. Lewis says this, in the Christian story, God descends to only reascend. He comes down from the heights of absolute being into time and space down into humanity, down to the very roots and the seabed of the nature that he created. But he goes down only to come up again and to bring the ruined world with him. 
One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must also disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass of those who saved him, the mass swaying on his shoulders. So this description by C.S. Lewis, is, uh, who was uh, quite an intellect theologian, puts the description of Christ's descent from heaven to here on earth and shows that humility and how through that humility he suffers and dies and then is resurrected and sits at the right hand of the Father. That's how Lewis approached the Incarnation, which he considered the central miracle of Christianity. We might say, well, why would, you, why would somebody define this as the central miracle? Apart from Christ coming here as fully God and fully man, he could not experience death and resurrection, and he, there was no one outside of God that could provide the way of salvation. It had to be God, and he had to come here in the form of man to live a sinless life and to die and to be resurrected again. So as we look at this, let's examine these words uh, a little closer. Uh, verse 6, Paul says that, <clears throat> excuse me, although he existed in the form of God, that word form comes uh, from the word morph. And there's two, two words for form. Morph is one of them. And as we consider this, morph is the essential form which never alters. The other word for form is the outward form, which changes. So the essence of Christ never changed. He was fully God. He didn't become God. He was God. He always was God, and he always will be God. So that form more didn't change. That essence remained the same. But also, he became man. That form was changing. That's from the word schema. That is a form that changes. For instance, in the essence of uh, mankind. We have an infant, that's a human being, then we have a baby, then we have a child, that child grows into maturity, becomes an adult. So that form, schema, is, doesn't change the essence of who that is, and yet is always changing. God showed they showed favor, and God showed favor, and he grew in stature and wisdom. So even though he was fully God, he had all wisdom, he kept growing as a man and maturing and understanding. He grew into the stature of a man. So that form, in the essence of a man, is changing, but his essence never changed. So that was the 
essence of how they brought the argument of God's true being. Even though he came here as a man, his essence never changed. This is a doctrine that we should all understand. And yet this doctrine is being refuted today. And it has throughout the church age. People attack the doctrine of God's incarnation. And we should be able to defend that when we present the gospel. We can only do so with God's word. Even though we can't have fuller understanding or full understanding, we, are, we know that this is truth that God inspired to be pinned so that we may have understanding of who God is and what he has done. We can only do so with his word. We can't try to articulate some argument intellectually. We must go to God's word, his truth, to present the essence of who God is. So incarnation is an essential doctrine of our Christian faith. We can't deny that, and yet we need to understand as much as God reveals to us through his word. <clears throat> Paul was saying that Jesus possessed the unchangeable essence and central nature of God. The interpretation of the first phrase of verse 6 is strengthened by the second phrase, which says that Jesus was equal with God. Being in the form of God speaks of Christ's equality with God, co-equal, co-substantial with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So there was complete equality in the triune Godhead. Even though, as Cornell pointed out when they looked at the text in 1 Corinthians 11, there is the essence of submission and authority. And when we looked at that text, I'll just bring you to it because Cornell just did it recently. And if you would, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11. And let's just look at verse 3 in light of this text in Philippians. I'll read it from the New American Standard. But I want you to know and understand that Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of a woman. And God called, <clears throat> God is the head of Christ. So as we look at that text, it shows the equality and yet the authority and submission role of the Godhead, the triune Godhead. And God is using that in Corinthians to show how he established the authoritative structure of man and woman. The essence is the same. If we look at Galatians 3, we know that there's neither Jew nor Greek or Gentile or as, as Paul presents that equality, he is saying there's no distinction in our essence, but there is a difference in the authoritative role. And here, as we look at Christ in the triune Godhead, he was totally and completely equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, all one in essence in one triune Godhead, and yet present, represented in three distinct personalities, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So as we look at that, that role that God carried out here on earth in his incarnation was that of complete submission to the Father, 
and yet completely equal to the Father. Hard for us to understand, perhaps, and yet it's clear from Scripture, not just here, not just in 1 Corinthians 11, but it's replete in the New Testament as we look at Jesus Christ and his essence of complete deity. <clears throat> the deity of Christ is the heart of a Christian faith. Inevitably, when people attack Christian faith, they attack the deity of Christ. Here are some verses that are scriptural supports for his deity. We just went through John a while back, but John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.3 and 4, he declares this, All things came into being by him, referring to Jesus Christ, and apart from him, nothing came into being that is coming into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 1.14, Christ became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as the only begotten from the Father. Hebrews 1.3, Christ is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. Christianity begins with the recognition of Christ as the essence of the eternal God. That is the embedded truth in all of Scripture. Christ did not cling to this equality. As we continue on in this text, in verse, the second half of verse 6, says, though he was existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So what does that mean? Here again, we look at the word equality. It describes things that are exactly equal size. And again, I'm going to quote uh, Montgomery Boyce in his description of this word. The English word from ex equality is the word isomer. Comes from the same word as isomers, plural, which are chemicals, molecules that differ in structure from each other, but are identical in atomic elements and weights. You could say their forms are different, whereas their essential character is the same. Christ is equal with God, and he exists in the form of God, end quote. So as we consider that word, it, it is key to understanding this text. The first step in the humiliation of Christ is what he did not hold on to and that was the equality with God, although he did not cling to that equality. There's no question that Jesus claimed it. He claimed his deity, and yet he didn't cling to that honor. So the, as we look at this truth regarding Christ and his example, the first step and the humiliation of Christ was that he did not hold on to the equality with God. Although he did not cling to that equality, there was no question that Jesus claimed to the people that he pre preached to and spoke with that he was God. John 10.33, when Christ asked the leaders why they wanted to stone him, they answered, for a good work 
we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because, being a man, you make yourself out to be God. They knew exactly what he was claiming. They knew exactly that he was claiming to be God. And that's why they wanted to stone him. They wanted to kill him. They were not only just jealous of this God-man that came here to suffer and die for their sin, but they wanted to destroy him. They didn't want anything to do with Jesus Christ. They rejected him, they hated him, and they wanted to kill him. And yet God incarnate lived a perfect sinless life. There was nothing they could accuse him of. So then they grasped to this sense of spirituality by saying, well, you're claiming to be God. That's why we're stoning you. He didn't deny that. <clears throat> In John 14, 9, Jesus said to Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. In John 20, 28, Thomas addressed Jesus as my Lord and my God. When God revealed himself and who he was, they would fall to their knees. They knew they were standing before a holy God. Although he had all the honors and deity of the Godhead, Christ didn't grasp them. The word translated grasp originally meant to rob a thing or a thing seized by robbery. I can't see the clock from here, so. That's what the interpretation of that means. It eventually came to mean anything clutched or embraced or held tightly or clung to or prized. Paul meant that although he was God, Christ refused to cling to his position with all its rights and honors. Remember, Christ descended from heaven. He enjoyed the glory and the fellowship of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in heaven. He came to this earth, descended to this earth, and became man, God incarnate. That in itself was a great humility. He wasn't being praised by the people here on earth. They were spitting upon him. They wanted, every time he approached these unbelieving Jews, they had no intent other than to destroy him and kill him or torture him first. And yet he knew what he faced when he came here. The incredible message of Christianity is far different from the world's. Man-made religion, if you go and look at uh, the religion in India, they're trying to appease their idols, their gods, small g. So the gods won't be angry with them. So they're always sacrificing or doing something to appease their idols. You look at any false religion, and they, though they deny the deity of Christ, they have to form their own god. Just as Romans 1, they suppress the truth about him. Christianity says God looked down on the wretched sinners who hated him and willingly yielded his privileges to give himself for their sake. The incarnation expresses this unselfish nature of God in the second person of the triune Godhead. 
when he emptied himself. Note the contrast here between verses 6 and 7. 6 says this, who although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Then in verse 7, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. As we said, as I looked at previously, Jesus did not cling to his pre, uh, privileges, but he emptied himself. This is a key word here. In verse 7, the word but. What it means is that he was not this, but that. That's what the word means. It's something different. He's not this, but he's that. That means the indicating of a clear contrast of ideas when you use this word but in the original language. He was absolutely full of deity, but emptied himself of all these privileges. Empty. It means to empty completely. He refused to do or use any of his divine rights on his own behalf. He wasn't there to be served. The creator God of all the universe came to serve on this earth. We try to grasp that, and if we ponder it just for a while, we get the picture and understanding of how great this humility was. The creator God comes to earth not to rule or to be served. He came to earth to serve and to live a perfect sinless life and to die, suffer a brutal death for all those that place their faith in him for salvation, forgiveness and salvation. So he emptied himself of, not of his deity, he was never any less God, but basically he took on the form of man. So coming down from glory, still being fully God, he came to live as a servant. And this form of humility was that the God who created all things is now serving the mankind that he created. I mean, if we think about that alone, think about God himself serving us. He created us. He could have said or done anything to protect himself from the onslaught of all the enemies of Christ. He didn't. He suffered and he died, never defending himself, though never denying his deity. So we have to understand God stood for righteousness and holiness and he demonstrated the life of Christianity in his fullness because he indeed is the essence of Christianity. He lived a life and that example is what Paul is pointing us to. Pointing us to Christ and his humility. R.C.H. Lenski, another commentator, said this, even in the midst of death, he had to be the almighty God in order to, by his death, conquer death. Do we see that? In order, by his death, he conquered death. Only God incarnate could do that. No man could do that. But Jesus Christ alone. 
He renounced his privileges. He renounced his heavenly glory. He did not give up his glory. In John 17, 5, Jesus prays, Glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had before the world was. Christ gave up the glory of a face-to-face relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He gave up the adoring presence of the angels to come down here to be spit upon and harshly treated and cruelly treated by man. Scripture records some of his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, his miracles, the cross, his resurrection, and his ascension. So I think we're going to have to stop here, though I thought I could get a little further. But is there any questions before I do stop in regards to the essence of what Paul is saying here? Not only the uh, incarnation of God himself, but the example we are given to follow. It is Christ that is a supreme example of humility. And Paul is calling all Christians to follow that example. We are to think others as more important than ourselves. Our agenda is not important. God's agenda is. And for a Christian, we are to consider others as more important than ourselves. That gets lost sight of in all the midst of our busy lives. We lose sight of the fact that we are here to serve God, not ourselves. We may not accomplish the things in life that we have established as our goals, but our goal here is to be more conformed to the image of Christ, to live for Christ. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the perfect and supreme example your servant Paul gave us of your son, Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that through the understanding and uh, appropriation of your grace, that we might live a life of humility as your son fully and completely and perfectly demonstrated. I pray, Father, that you would be glorified through that, that we wouldn't attempt to do anything in our own power and our own strength, for that would be nothing but filthy rags. We recognize that we have no righteousness. Our righteousness is only and supremely in your son, Jesus Christ. His righteousness was imputed to us through faith in Jesus Christ. We pray that you'd be glorified. And as we continue with song and praise and the proclamation of your word, may you fill your saints with your Holy Spirit as we humble ourselves confess our sins, and yield ourselves to you for your glory and for your divine glory throughout the world. We just pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.